Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. Hi, I'm Daniel Scheffler. This is Everywhere, a production of iHeartRadio. I have traveled to and fro South Africa my whole life. South Africa is special to me. It is my country of birth. The country is both my shield and my sword. It has protected me and it has also violated me. For my next interview, I'm with Richard Stengel, my best friend Mary's husband and Ella's girlfriend Tandy's father. He spent time in South Africa writing Nelson Mandela's book, Long Walk to Freedom. He also happened to work for Time magazine as its managing editor for many years and the government as Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs and has now written a timely book about disinformation, which he's going to tell us all about. I decided that for this week, because my interview with Richard was so fascinating, you don't want to hear me. What you really want to hear is Richard Stengel discussing South Africa and his life on the road. So here we go. On another note, you remember my friend Sarah Scarborough on episode 7, talking about tea and the history of tea across the world? Well, Sarah and I are planning a trip into the soul of tea. We're going to China for 10 days, to UNESCO World Heritage Sites, Tiger Leaping Gorge, and also Shanghai. You can book this trip with us at aclassictour.com slash souloftea or on my website danielscheffler.com or on her website teahuntress.com Come spend some time with us. We're going everywhere. I'm with my friend's husband, Richard Stengel, and um, I've known Richard for a long time and I feel like I know you better because my best friend is your wife and I walk 
the dogs with her in Central Park every day. So you feel almost part of my life as someone who I have not spent that much time with. Well, you're spending time with me, Daniel, when you're spending time with my wife and my dog. The beloved Tandi. The beloved Tandi. Well, as everybody knows, Ella, Tandi is Ella's girlfriend. And um, they have been in love for two years now, and they get to spend the funnest time together. And I have seen even you soften and become sweet with Tandi. Yes, she um, she definitely... <laughs> I'd never been a dog person before, and I kind of didn't understand it, and I get it now. And late in life, I'm finally becoming a dog person, or really a Tandi person. Well, I've seen you with her, and it's very sweet, Richard. I love it. Even uh, Michael has commented how like sweet you are with Tandi. And then we watch you on MSNBC, and you this like serious policy wonk, like intellectual. And then I'll see you with the dog and you're like soft and cuddly. And I love that. You know, it's interesting what dogs do with couples because you direct a lot of affection towards the dog and in some ways not so much toward each other. And the the dog becomes this kind of symbol of your connection in in a strange way. Well, whenever I'm traveling, which is all the time, and a lot of the time Michael can't come with me, he'll say, Oh, Ella's missing you. Ella's really missing you. Or he'll, um, you know, he's not the first to have an emotion outwardly. And he'll say something like, Ella's very sad today (laughs) because you're not here. And I hear it for what it is. But it is, it's a beautiful part of the relationship that is kind of made my travel life almost bearable because I'm always on the road, but I know that there's this dog at home that's loving Michael. But does it have the opposite effect and make you not want to leave? Yes, of course. Yeah. We got back from Italy last night and both Michael and I, we went to pick up Ella from Nonna and both of us were so like, we Mm. couldn't wait to get to the dog. And it was funny when we got home, I was like, oh, everything's back to normal. Like it felt like you ease into a normality when it's the three of us opposed to just us and we were together in Italy on a holiday. Well, the way I look at it is, as you know, I have two sons and a wife and Tandi, I feel, is the one person in the household that actually has genuine affection for me. So I can come home and, and <laughs> boys, are, <laughs> boys are completely uninterested at this age that they're in now. So Tandi becomes my kind of heartfelt friend at home. That's very sweet. Richard, I know you have a book coming out. Tell me about the book. The book is called Information Wars, How We Lost the Global Battle Against Disinformation and What to Do About It. And it's the story of my time at the State Department. I went to the State Department. I'd been editor of Time for seven years, and I became the Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs, which is, I always thought of, that's the chief marketing officer of Brand USA. But what I found when I was there, because two events happened at about the same time just as I came into the administration— the Russian annexation of Crimea, and the first of the ISIS beheadings. And I suddenly saw this tsunami of disinformation coming from Russia about what was happening in Ukraine and Crimea, all of the propaganda coming from ISIS about uh, the grievances of, of Sunni Muslims. And this was a whole new world for me. And we started in both cases, these two engines, you know, counter ISIS messaging and counter Russian propaganda. And 
it's the story of how we attempted to do that and mostly failed at it because it's a really hard thing to do, especially right. for government. Right. Do you think that we'll ever be able to get over this disinformation issue? You know, one of the things I say in the book is that disinformation is as old as information, right? As soon as there was factual information, there were people lying about it. I you know, I joke that it began in the Garden of Eden when Satan said to Eve, you know, take a bite out of, out of that apple and nothing's going to happen to you. That was that was disinformation. So, I think it's unrealistic and naive to think that you can do away with it. I'm not a a purist about what truth is, um, but it's hard because there will always be people who lie and there will always be people who believe those lies. And part of that comes from confirmation bias, which is this idea that we tend to agree with the things that we already agree with. So if someone's telling I you- I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> you're such a smart young man. Uh, so the thing is, if someone is telling you an untruth, but it does- adhere to what you already believe, you'll be much more likely to believe it. And in fact, there's a something called the opposite, which is the backfire effect, which is when you try to disabuse someone of what they believe, they double down and become even more confirmed in that belief. Right. So, so that's why it's a really hard thing to combat, because it's really about who we are as human beings. Right. Well, I spent some time with some Trump supporters recently. And I think at some point I realized that there's such a divide between what I believe, whatever it is, gay rights, I'm, I'm kind of more, we're all in this mess together, opposed to what this particular person believes, where it is a much more of a, it's me, it's me alone, and I'm going to work and do this myself. And instead of fighting with them and kind of avoiding that doubling down, as you say, I just listened. And it was one of the most incredible things that's happened to me. I do a whole episode on this because I think it's important to, to realize that we need to bridge gaps, all these gaps that are being created every day. But it's unbelievable what people want to believe. And I spent time in ashrams in India and the teachers said to me, at the end, when you strip it all away, when you strip away everything you are, your religion, your bullshit, your sexuality, your gender, you will only be left with your belief system. And most people will never let go of that. Yes, there's a lot in there, Daniel. Um, and the thing is, one of the things that Trump did, and I talk about this in the book, is there became this kind of unholy trinity between Trump and Putin and ISIS, because in some ways they were doing the same thing. What did ISIS do? They weaponized the grievance of Sunni Muslims who felt left out by the modern world. What did Putin do? He weaponized the grievance of Russians who bemoaned the fall of the Soviet Union, that they were not a global power anymore. And Trump weaponized the grievance of mostly older, white, not highly educated Americans who also felt left out by the modern world, felt left out by globalization, felt that they weren't having the attention paid to them or the credit they deserved, and it was going instead to people of color or LGBT people or all of these new ideas that they couldn't reckon with. And I don't want to be, you know, sound um, paternalistic about that. Or, or, or It's a real thing. And I think one of the things that we discounted is people who did feel left out by globalization, mm. which is actually not about jobs being shipped overseas, but it's really about automation. It's that, you know, machines and robots are taking the place of workers. And we've never done a very good job of telling folks, you know what, 
that job in that tire making factory is going to go away because there's a machine that can do it automatically who won't have sick days and do it for one-tenth the cost. So I do think there's this group of people in the United States who feel that way. And we, ha- and, and, and we, that is Democrats and liberals, whatever you want to call it, haven't done a very good job of talking to them and haven't done a very good job of explaining what the future is like. I mean, and I don't even know what to do about it. I mean, I think that there's a demographic solution in the U.S. in the sense that the country is getting darker. It will be a majority non-white country in 2040 or 2045. I mean, it's a different place than the world that so many of those Trump voters grew up in. And I think we all have to adapt to it. Darwin said it. (laughs) So yesterday I get off the plane and we're driving back to the city in a cab and I see a Confederate flag with New Jersey plates. And Michael and I started discussing this. And I said to him, have you ever seen that not in the South? And he said, no. And he was like, but Daniel, what does it really mean? And my instinct was, it's a call for help. I need to help him. I need to not call him a fucking racist. I need to help this person. I need to show them that me, the gay white boy from Africa, is the same as him that I have the same fears and the same loves and the same hopes and desires. And that's how I feel about Trump voters. It's how I feel about other. They call me other, but to me, they are also other. Somehow I have to help them. Somehow we have to help each other because otherwise we're fucked. I completely agree. And I mean, for years, I was a political correspondent. I covered three presidential campaigns. I traveled all around America, extensively in the South, covered Republican candidates, many of whom I adored. And you do see this divide, which is too simple a term for it, where where it all goes back to America's original sin, which was slavery. And even the Democratic candidates are now talking about reparations and things, but it's this original sin because it created a cleave in America between the South and the North and the South and the West. And today, the legacy of it is is a cultural thing. I'm not. I wouldn't. I in my heart, I don't necessarily call somebody a racist because I don't know what's in their heart. I do know there's a cultural divide, and people in the South who feel that they've been left out, that the direction that America is going in is a different direction that they want to go in. And look, some of it, I think, is animated by distrust, animosity, fear of the other, which everybody has. And I do agree that that people like that need help. The problem is that it's very hard to have that conversation for the reasons we were talking about already, that people double down in in their belief. Uh, Beliefs, even the definition of that term, are not necessarily based on facts. That's one reason it's so hard to dislodge them. So, um, again, I don't have an easy answer. I mean, because even even when you try to disabuse somebody of something, there are these things that sociologists call belief echoes. So if you you retweet a Trump tweet just to say that it's full of falsehoods, there's a belief echo that people get from seeing the original Trump tweet that never goes away, even if you say it's completely false. So it's a difficult problem. And I do think, you know, not not to get on my preachy soapbox, but, you know, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and I always believed what the, you know, the motto on the, which is the presidential seal, e pluribus unum, out of many one. And my family were all immigrants. I mean, both of my grandfathers never graduated from high school. Neither of them were born here. And I always believed in this idea of out of many one, that that the values of America, the ideas of America transcended 
religion or color or race. And that if you believed in that, that's what made you an American. And that's what made you not only equal with other people, but brothers and sisters with everyone else. And, and I feel that's been lost. And I feel that one of the things that Donald Trump has done is deliberately dividing people. I mean, look, when you run for president, you try to get votes. But every president in, that I've it's been in my lifetime ultimately tries to speak to all Americans and has this understanding that I'm president of all Americans. And Trump doesn't have that. He feels like I'm only the president for the people who voted for me, and even not necessarily all of them. So, so again, it's a big problem, and I'm sorry I'm, I'm not offering any real solutions to it. But I do think it trying to understand what the person on the other side thinks is the first step in trying to come to some kind of harmonious relationship with people. Do you think that, <laughs> do you feel optimistic? Let me put it that way. You know, again, partly through this book, I've, I've thought and, and written a fair amount about cognitive biases. And, and uh, the great Daniel Kahneman said that optimism and pessimism, it's a biological thing, has nothing to do with reality. You could, you know, you could be in the gates of hell and feel optimistic if that's your temperament. So right. I am, by nature, an optimist. But I do think there are some causes for optimism in the sense that there is more transparency now than there was before. When, when Republican candidates used to run, they just used dog whistles to appeal to some of these voters. Now we have a guy in the White House who's talking to them directly, you know, who's using that direct language of, of division. And I, I feel, okay, now we know it's out in the open. Let, how do we figure out how to move forward from here? So I, I think, you know what, in the sense that it's, it's open and transparent, I feel good about that. Not about those sentiments, but about how we how we figure out how to move forward, knowing that that this is really who folks are. Right. Let's take a breather, and we'll be right back with Everywhere after a word from our sponsors. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, 
HealthLock technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. Thanks for sticking around. Here's more of everywhere. With no further ado, let's get back to Richard Stengel. Richard, so what I would love to talk about is how travel has played into your life. It was such a big part of being the Undersecretary of State. And obviously, as the editor of Time Magazine, managing editor of Time Magazine, you were on a plane all the time. So share some stories. I, I, I know that you had to fly coach when you were at the State Department. <laughs> Not always. And um, Mary and I have had many a laugh about that, imagining you shuttling across to the Middle East in um, a little seat. Well, you know, the thing that people didn't realize, and I guess I didn't realize before going into government, is that government travel, at least State Department travel, is actually governed by congressional legislation, which says you have to always, your default carrier has to be an American carrier, that you sit in coach unless the flight is over 14 hours. But one of the things that I loved about the Obama administration is that people took the rules seriously. And I would see the Secretary of the Treasury flying in coach between New York and Washington. You'd never see that in any other country in the world, and you probably don't see it in the Trump administration. So there was something very American, small r Republican about it that, that I liked. And because in many ways, part of the job was, as I said, to project Americanness, the brand of America. And I remember even when I was in office, when one of Barack Obama's first trips to China, he got off the plane and it was raining out and he was carrying his own umbrella. Well, it was on the front page of every Chinese newspaper. The president of the United States was carrying his own umbrella. Even the deputy mayor of the smallest city in China has three people carrying umbrellas for him when he gets off an airplane. And so there's something American about it. There's something small d democratic about it that I like, much as I didn't always like, you know, sitting in a very cramped seat for 13 and a half hours. And as, you know, Mary probably told you and my State Department staff knows, I'm a very cranky traveler and people would be like, you know, only the guys who got the short straw would travel with me at the State Department because it's like, oh, no. <laughs> but by the way, you have special assistants. That's what the job is called. You have four as an undersecretary. They're like your go-to people for different regions in the world. And they would always have pieces of dark chocolate, espresso beans covered in dark chocolate, and espressos for me whenever I was traveling, whenever I got really cranky. It was like, here's the chocolate and here's the caffeine. So that was their solution. I have the same with Michael. He gets so cranky. We flew to Rome last week, and he was in the worst mood. At some point, he said to me, just don't speak. <laughs> just don't speak at all. And I was like, oh, he needs food. Yes. But the thing about State Department travel, and, and I have to say, I have, I have not done much travel since then, is it kind of cures you of travel for a while, in part because it's not about sightseeing or feeling the culture. It's about flying all night getting off an airplane, going into a series of meetings and not seeing anything. So I probably went to 25 different countries during my three years, maybe more, in the State Department. And 
after the first year or so, I said, hey, you got to put at least one sightseeing thing for me every day. I mean, I remember the, one of my first trips to, was to Burma, to Myanmar. I didn't get to see anything. And it's like, that's just not right. And in fact, because part of my job was to kind of promote cultural connections, I needed to do things like that, see museums, you know, meet with young people. And that always was a bit of a refresher. And um, But because my kids were still at home, I tried to travel only between Monday and Friday. But sometimes I'd be on a trip to three different countries between Monday and Friday and spend three nights on an airplane. I mean, it, it was, you know, it's not fun gallivanting around the world. <laughs> That's what I've been doing. <laughs> <laughs> that is what you've been doing, yeah. Richard, tell me, um, tell me a story that was memorable or meaningful to you about the State Department travel. Well, for me, uh, I'm trying to think of something more irreverent, but this is a little more serious. I, I, because I got engaged in this countering Russian disinformation and was so upset, like so many people, about what Russia did in Crimea, which was part of Ukraine, and then the soft invasion that they did of eastern Ukraine, I went to Ukraine three times and completely fell in love with it. I mean, it feels like a country that is at war, and they are at war, but it's this country where there's a lot of resilience. And it's a, you know, it's a, Kiev is a beautiful city. The Ukrainians are beautiful people. And it felt like there was an aliveness there when I was there that, that was very inspiring. And because they're under the gun, and they know that, you know, their big neighbor to the north is always, you know, kind of threatening them. And I also went two or three times to the Baltics, you know, Riga, Latvia, Lithuania, fell in love with the Baltics, beautiful old world places, lovely, lovely people, also who felt threatened for a thousand years by Russia. And over that course of that thousand years, they were sometimes part of Russia and sometimes not. And so for me, being able to go to those places as an American and saying, we're on your side was, was powerful. So It was a different kind of travel, and it made you aware of this sort of existential threat that different people around the world have. So it was beautiful, and it was meaningful, and, um, and I felt like we were trying to do the right thing. Maybe there's a part of that that is open to all travelers. Perhaps it's not just going and enjoying the sights and being a part of the culture and eating the food, but also being aware of more of the political, sociopolitical, and as you call it, existential things that are happening. So go to Africa and be aware of all these nuances and extremisms that play in a beautiful, scary, incredibly feisty way in every moment that you're there. Yes. I mean, when I was a young journalist, the thing that I loved more than anything else was to get an assignment that would put me on an airplane to go someplace I'd never been before, either in the U.S. or abroad. And I just felt like my whole world was expanding. The, you know, your view is expanding. It, it changes the corpuscles in your body, I think. And in fact, one of those places was when I first went to South Africa. And I had been writing for Rolling Stone magazine as a freelancer, and I did a couple of pieces, and I was sitting in my editor's office there one day, and she got a phone call from a famous British journalist who was saying he couldn't go to South Africa to cover the township riots and the, and the kind of revolution going on there in the mid-80s. And she turned to me and said, want to go to South Africa? Yes, ma'am. I'd never been to Africa before. 
And in a couple of weeks, I was flying down there and they wanted me to do a story about young people and are there friendships across the color line. And I ended up doing a story in this little town of Brits in the Western Transvaal where there was a forced removal where the where the white authorities were trying to move the black township further away from the white town. And I did a story for them about a, a young black man and a, and a young white boy living in the same town, which eventually became my first book called January Sun, which was about three families, including an Indian family. And it was just so different. And, and you know, South Africa was an authoritarian state in those days, and it was a, a racist authoritarian state. And it just, it just felt so different. And you felt this kind of pressure on you at all times. But it's an incredibly beautiful place with wonderful, beautiful people. And it kind of opened my eyes. And I, and I remember, you know, I think you probably know that famous journalistic expression, when you go to a new country, after the first three days, you can write a book. After the first three weeks, you can write an article, but after three months, you don't know what to say. You feel there in that you have that kind of overconfidence about your sense of a situation when you're first there over that first week or so. But I remember when I went back to work on the book, and I spent about six months living in this really godforsaken little town, Afrikaans-speaking town, and and I did do the book, but it just becomes much more complex. It's just you don't have these facile and easy things to say about any place when you've spent a lot of time there. And it's an interesting rule. And, you know, most of us, when we travel, we don't spend a long time in a particular place. And even though it expands your brain, you also have to realize you're not really completely understanding the place the way you would if you really spent a lot of time there. People go to Cape Town all the time, right? And they tell me the story. Oh, Cape Town is incredible. So beautiful. And the food and the wine and the blah, blah, blah. You know, they tell. And then I go, yes, but what about everything else? And it's so easy to not see that. That's the thing about travel. You have to be open to the good and the bad. Yes. And Cape Town is a particularly good example because right. it's such a stunningly beautiful place. But, you know, we're talking about first world white travelers and they, they don't go to Kailicha or to the township or see how vast that is. I mean, and I guess people don't want to. It clouds your vision. It, it's a little bit depressing. And that's why South Africa is such a poignant and heartbreaking place because there's so much beauty and wealth and then so much poverty and and despair. And it's hard to see all of that. And, you know, you know, I worked with Nelson Mandela. And so, of course, when I was working with him, we were always going to places like Kailicha and Soweto. And, and, and it was also an eye-opener for me and to go with him where he was beloved and just to see the poverty that they lived in the, and the fact that you know, that the first world part of South Africa depended on the on the poverty of black South Africans. And, you know, that's a hard thing. And, and they're still, of course, trying to evolve out of that. How was your time with Nelson Mandela? You wrote the book for him, with him, Long right. Walk to Freedom. Long Walk to Freedom. Um, I remember reading that as a child and I struggled through it, mm. but it's something I remember. I remember my opinions of South Africa and feeling complicated about it and being from there, but not growing up there, but my parents not being from there, but sort of from there. And what all of that meant to me, travel has taken me out of all that and back in. Mm. And that's the beauty that travel's given me. Mm. And I don't know if I would have had this perspective or this feeling in the world if I wasn't from South Africa. Well, there's that um, saying from 
think it was Emerson, what do Americans know who only America know? And that's how I feel about South Africans. What do South Africans know who only South Africans knows? Because, of course, South Africans weren't allowed to travel anywhere else in the world, and there's a kind of narcissism that white South Africans have. But to see it through Nelson Mandela, whom I loved, was such a privilege. And, you know, he was a beautiful man, right? I mean, he's six foot two, handsome, big beaming smile, broad shoulders, he'd been a boxer as a young man. I remember Walter Sisulu, who was with him on Robben Island for all those years and really was his closest friend and advisor. One of the great privileges working on the book is I got to meet all of those people and interview them. And I remember Walter told me this story when Mandela first came to Johannesburg as 18 years old from the provinces. And Walter Susulu was a real estate agent in, in uh, Soweto and was the head of the ANC Youth League. And he said, when Nelson Mandela walked through that door, I said to myself, we want to be a mass organization. That young man is a mass leader. For all the reasons I was said, he was tall, he was handsome, he smiled, which was an unusual thing in the 1950s for a leader to smile. We're all used to that now. And, and sort of see South Africa through his eyes and through all of the terrible prejudice that he was the victim of. I mean, you just it's unimaginable, right? He spent 27 years in prison, the prime of his life. He missed out on his family life and, and all of that. And... I was about to say, yet he's not bitter, which people always say, I can't believe he's not bitter. He, in fact, he was bitter, but part of his leadership was to hide that from people. He could not have reconciled the country and let people see him being bitter toward his jailers. So what did he do? He spoke Afrikaans to his jailers. He had lunch with them. He went to see Mrs. Favut, who was the, you know, the wife of the man who created apartheid, because he needed people to believe that he wasn't bitter, that they could reconcile, that black and white could get along without feeling like this history of enmity was going to corrupt the present. Shouldn't we be applying that to this country right now? Shouldn't I, I be going for lunch or with tea with Mrs. Trump? I need to do something. I have um, a small platform. I have this show that's about travel and it's about opening your eyes and it's about life and it's and it's about being open. And, and I want to use this to get people to vote, for instance. I don't care who the fuck you vote for. Mm -hmm. Just vote. Mm -hmm. Exercise your democracy. Mm -hmm. Or I want to use this to just be like, I'm just like you. You know, they are truck drivers that listen to my show. I know this because they've contacted me on um, Instagram. They travel a lot. Too. They travel a lot. And they must have heard my ad on iHeartRadio across the nation. And they download my show like a white, straight truck driver from Idaho sent me a message on Instagram and told me, I love your show. That, for me, is crossing a divide which I'm almost overwhelmed by. And, and that's encouraging. I mean, it's almost a bit of a dirty word, I mean, to say, I, I'm an American exceptionalist. And, but what I mean by American exceptionalism is this idea of, out of many one, of e pluribus unum, that this is the country that is this great, as the cliche goes, melting pot, where people come here and embrace the ideas and get past their prejudices and, and hatreds from the old world or wherever they came from. I mean, again, that's a bit of a sentimentalization of the whole thing, but it hurts me that America is so divided that people aren't embracing the ideas that make us who we are. And I have, again, a, a positive view of what Americanness is and, and 
crushes me to see that that people are not embracing that and that you have a president of the United States who doesn't seem to understand that. But Daniel, you know what? I think you'll solve the whole problem by having Melania Trump on your show and that will bring the whole country together. Okay, well, Melania, come. I'm waiting. This is a great moment for us to travel to advertising land and we'll be right back with Everywhere. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock HealthLock Technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Welcome once again to Everywhere. Let's hop back to it. So, with no further ado, let's get back to Richard and I. I remember last year there was a death threat with the mail bomber towards you and your family. It was an MSNBC and I remember feeling like how shocking that was. Mary and I walked that day with the dogs and... She's South African and she was a war photographer and she's like chilled. But I remember feeling like, fuck, that's serious. But I think if you and that person happen to be in the same room, that person would see that you are no threat, that you don't need to be bombed, that you are only interested in this country and what's best for this country and that you are just the same. Well, I... I was sort of blasé about it because these guys are knuckleheads and they tend to not be able to do the thing that they say they want to do. And I and when I was at the State Department, I got many threats from from ISIS guys and their acolytes. And even when I was editor of Time, similar kinds of things. And I think when you're in the arena or in the public eye, that that is part of the job. And again, as you said about Mary, I mean, she was a township war photographer. I, I remember when when I was editor of Time and we we did the protester as person of the year and we I was in Tahrir Square doing the protests there during the Arab Spring and 
I got tear gassed. In fact, the, our foreign editor kind of grabbed me and rescued me from it. And like, I proudly called her that night and she was like, I, I was tear gassed 50 different times. <laughs> completely unimpressed. Mary is so badass. Yeah, completely <laughs> unimpressed. And um, so, yeah, so I mean, get a little, you get used to it. At the same time, I think there is a, on a continuum, I think people in left and right do have more in common than they think they do. This idea that we're so polarized is in some ways exaggerated. I mean, we're not as polarized as we were during the Civil War when one out of four American boys between 18 and 24 lost their lives. And there was a civil war about an ideological disagreement. So we're very, very far from that. But I do think this, like this Caesar Sayoc fellow and the and other sort of white supremacist terrorists, you know, we have to figure out how to tone down the language because it does obviously have an effect on them. And we see that all the time. And I've always thought it was naive when I'd hear Congress people say, oh, so-and-so was created by the internet or this terrorism is caused by the internet. That's silly. The internet doesn't cause anybody anything. But at the same time, it does make people more extreme. They double down on their beliefs and we have to figure out how to how to tone down the rhetoric and how to talk to each other in a more civil way. This leads me into thinking about something that you and I have definitely talked about, but I don't know if we've talked about this enough. I wonder, how do we then combat the disinformation? So I speak to my neighbor and she's convinced that climate change is not real. I push her friend in Italy in a wheelchair around Matera and it's 104 degrees. And the guide who's with us keeps saying, it's the hottest summer on record. Glaciers are melting. It's, it's never been this hot in Italy. And the woman goes, it's a hoax. Don't believe it. How do I possibly show her that the information that she has is not correct? It's it's tough, as we've been saying. And one of the things I say in the book is that we don't have a fake news problem. We have a media literacy problem that people can't and haven't been taught how to distinguish between something that's fact and fiction, what the provenance of that information is. And we're also scientifically illiterate, that so much of the skepticism and doubt about climate change comes from people who are not scientifically literate, that are not reading scientific papers about the way the environment has changed and what how man has caused that to change. And again, I, I don't, that's not an easy answer because as we were talking about earlier, there's that backfire effect. If someone is so persuaded that climate change is false, when you try to dissuade them of that or try to persuade them of something else that often reconfirms the belief that they already have. And I do think, you know, one of the things that that is a problem of our time is that, now this is going to sound really grandiose, which is that technology is evolving, but human beings are not. Mm. Technology is evolving at a rapid rate. And we still have the, you know, reptilian brain that we had 50,000 years ago. That's a problem. And mm. I actually think that we can figure out how to use technology to evolve us and to make democracy work better. But right now, we're so focused on how technology is undermining that, which it may be, but it also has the potential of, of making us more evolved. Right. And in an objective scientific way saying, look, here's the reality. Everybody's got to recognize that. We may differ on what to do about it. 
or what caused it, but this is the state of play that we can all acknowledge. And, you know, when I was went into the State Department and and was confirmed before Congress, one of the things I said in my opening remarks was this great line from from Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was the New York senator when I was growing up here, and he said, uh, people are entitled to their own opinions, they're not entitled to their own facts. But nowadays, people feel like they're entitled to their own facts, that, that I have a fact, it's not an opinion. Well, that's a very hard thing to disabuse people of. And I do think technology can help us come to a factual basis of different things that we can all agree on. That, to me, is the foundation for progress, right? To just agree that 2 plus 2 equals 4, then how do we move on from there? Right. I would talk to you all day. Let's um, wrap and tell me something like a funny story about Nelson Mandela or like something or funny a travel story or a travel story that's funny. Um, I don't know if you know, but when I was working with Mandela... He knew Mary because Mary photographed him on the first day he came out of Victor Verstair prison. And she's a beautiful, red-haired photographer, pretty unforgettable. And when he saw that we were going out together, he would always say to me, you must marry that girl. It's hard to say no to Nelson Mandela, and I did not. And when our first son was about to be born, we called him on uh, New Year's Day. We used to call him or see him every New Year's Day. And I wanted to tell him that Mary was pregnant, which I did do. And I was talking to him on the phone, and I said, if, if it's a boy, we're going to call him Hurley Klakla. As you know, <laughs> that's Nelson Mandela's real first name, a Kosa name that's unpronounceable and unspellable. Well, he has a pretty good sense of humor, and he was silent. And I thought, did I mispronounce it? Did he think it was presumptuous of this white American to name his son Hurley Klakla? So I said, would you like to say hello to Mary? And he said, of course. And I passed the phone to her. And she said, hello, Madiba, which everybody called him. And then I was standing close so I could hear what he said after that. He said, I cannot wait to see you and the little holy clakla. <laughs> <laughs> well, I you know, love that it turned out to be Gabe and not yeah. holy clakla. So what happened was, you know, cut to whatever it was, five months later, we're in the hospital and the boy is born. And we thought, Oh my God! Can we? We have to do something, but I we can't call him Holy Clockline in his first name. So Gabriel Stengel's middle name is Holy Clockline. I never knew that. Yes, Gaby Baby. Yes, with the beautiful middle name. That's sweet. I could spend the rest of the day with you and talk. All right, let's everything. do that. I'm happy to. Thank you for um, making time for me, and um, I can't wait for your book. That's um, imminent. So congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. It's great to have it done. And it's been fantastic to be with you today. Thanks, Richard. I guess I'll go back to Mary now. <laughs> <laughs> have her on the show. I'd love to have her on the show. It has come to the end of our season one. I have had the most memorable and joyous time. I love creating and thinking about this. We've covered so much ground, emotionally and of course physically, and it's left me hungry to travel more, hungry to think more. It has shown me how travel is a way that you can lose yourself to find yourself. I set out on this podcast everywhere to remind people how 
if you're not filled with fear, you can go and find love in travel. I realize that a part of that has to do with not telling people what to do, but merely suggesting. So, I will see you with some bonus episodes that we're going to scatter into the rest of the year as a surprise. And then I will see you early next year with season two. Of course, there's lots to look forward to, but I will tease that to you later. For the moment, think about how good boys go to heaven and bad boys go everywhere. Also think about some of the suggestions I've made over the last few months. Being generous, leaving your smartphone, trying something new, embracing the stillness, universal values, things that I can do and you can do and anyone can do. Of course, I couldn't have done this without my executive producers, Holly and Christopher. The finest Chandler Mays, who's my lead producer, made this journey so much more collaborative and creative. Thank you, Chandler. And then, of course, Tristan as co-editor and creator of the soundtrack. So, I bid you farewell. I will see you in the skies or somewhere random. And you will find me everywhere. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.